noise. I urge uh, my friends and colleagues to look carefully at what I wrote, things that, that I've said that are wrenched out of, out of context of uh, 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 buses. I have concluded that person cannot be me. Old boys. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of the Old Boys Book Club. My name's Johnny. My name is Andy. And yeah, we are, we've got a triple threat this week. We're doing three chapters because uh, the author, the Prime Minister, has, uh, <laughs> has written three very little ones all in a row. So we thought we'd do 37, 38 and 39 today for those of you reading along at home. Well, one of the things I did want to talk to you about before we got properly stuck into it is uh, there's, there's been some great old boy action this week. And let me, uh, uh, let me stop you there, Johnny. There's, um, <laughs> I'd like you to turn to, this is the read along section, if you're reading along at home, if not, just imagine it. I'd like you to turn to the, the very second page of the book, not of the story, of the book itself. Oh, yes. And uh, so you've got the first page with all of those presumably made up quotes. You've got the yes. 72 versions page. And then you've got a page with a little bit of Latin on, haven't you, Johnny? And it says, uh, it says Optimus Parentibus. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, this, this is a dedication which uh, appears in uh, a lot of books. Mm -hmm. And it means, uh, it means to my excellent parents. Oh, right, okay. Uh, <laughs> and one of, one of his parents really is excellent. <laughs> Big and, Stanley. Uh, <laughs> been in the news, hasn't he? He's been old boying the shit out of Europe. He's absolutely old boyed the shit out of him this week, hasn't he? he oh, he's he's on an absolute tear all over the shop. Couldn't OB directly to Greece, so he old boyed his way into Bulgaria first, <laughs> and then old boyed straight to Greece from there. He's done the double, presumably on a propeller plane, charting his uh, journey across Europe on a dotted map a la Indiana Jones, getting a sticker at every port. Yeah. Old Stan, old essential works, <laughs> holiday landlord Stan. <laughs> this, is, a, this is actually, I just wanted to say, like, I only saw the headlines of this story, and I was... I was obviously loving it because I was just like, I mean, this is this is too perfect. It's like just classic old boy behavior, but I didn't actually click through and read it. And you were the one who actually informed me as to what his excuse was. Because <laughs> I, I just assumed that he's just gone for a holiday, right? I mean, which he, which he no, has, no, obviously. No, no, but... <laughs> oh, no, 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 Johnny. <laughs> but I underestimated his old boy powers, I have to say. He's uh, in the in a what will likely be a very troubled economic times. People like Stanley, the old boys have got to do what they can to keep the wheels turning, and uh, he's selflessly flown to. And he'd rather or not, he would rather or not, but he's selflessly <laughs> flown to Greece, Tony, to restart his uh, holiday letting business in the villa he owns over there. Because, yeah. uh, so it's going to clean itself up, is it? Not in this pandemic. And he had to. He said he had to go and put in extensive. Um, COVID-related self-isolating uh, tactics and methods into the ability to make holiday goes safe. So if he's, if that's, <laughs> you know, that, not all of it probably, but a lot of that will go in the, back in the tax-paying coffers. So yeah. it's, it's, it's heroes, like Stanley Johnson, those, we need more of those. These are the old boys propping up the economy, doing their bloody duty when you and your avocado toast mean that you'll probably never be a slum landlord the way you carry on with your latte art. So, Less of a lip for heroes. Uh, I, I don't. I feel like Stanley Johnson's not had enough um, enough love on this pod. But um, but yeah, what a man! What a man! I, I did. You might not have seen it earlier in the year. He's applied for a French passport so that his um, 
grandchildren can have the benefits of removal <laughs> that their father took away. <laughs> yes. That's, wow. It's just exceptional. It's just exceptional. Anyway, um, yes, Stanley Johnson uh, raise, raise, raising a glass of decent claret to you tonight. What a man. So. Um, but I'm afraid the rules do apply to us, Andy, and we have to do these chapters in numerical order. Um, so would you be so kind as to join me after the break for chapter 37? I'd be delighted to. Old boys. So this is chapter 37, Johnny. Remembering we're in part three. <laughs> and uh, it's page 219 if you're reading along at home. And uh, it's 10.27am. I know I want to do this. and I know the forums come alive every time. Mm. But I just remind avid listeners that the book started at 752 <laughs> when we started this last year and uh we're, yeah. we've got to 1027 so can just I, over two and a half hours of, of narrative time um before we start this chapter can i ask you uh when the last time you read a book that had 37 chapters was and i was still only just over halfway <laughs> Yeah, it's rare. I guess not many, uh, not many books will have half-page chapters. There, not yeah. not adult books by <laughs> four adults. I say the full unabridged version of Aesop's Fables, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's you're right. It, it is rare, isn't it? I imagine this is yeah. I imagine yeah. the kind of Thirty Shades of Grey might have a lot of chapters, but yeah, that's the kind of. I, I suppose the one thing is you might link. A lot of chapters to snappy reading pace. Yeah, and uh, uh, this obviously being the exception to that. Your chap, the number of chapters shouldn't be between a fifth and a sixth of your number of pages. No, like that just, <laughs> no absolutely not. Well, actually, and on that, you know, we're we're doing the triple, we're doing the hat trick, aren't we tonight? So yeah, yeah. That's, that's how short they are. So, but anyway, chapter thirty-seven, ten twenty-seven, in the AM, and we open with. Your favourite adopted child. Great. Dean stood at the top of the steps, looking out over the audience, as Benedict and the four other Arabs moved up and down the aisle, harvesting the mobiles in big black sacks and disarming any obvious security men, which we know there are tons. <laughs> oh, bloody room was stacked with them. Could only count through a couple of them when we tried to do a roll call, but we know there's tons. I think when they look back on this operation, making the security men obvious will be something they'll they'll highlight as a, as an error. <laughs> we'll put that in the could improve column. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the cameras were allowed to function. Indeed, they were essential, as you remember, Johnny, for Jones's mm -hmm. plan. Mm -hmm. And the close-up of the terrified kid was now flashed across the nation's screens and round the world. Wow. His large, expressive eyes were so wide that the whites entirely surrounded the irises. His lips were grey, and he was holding a Schmidt given to him by Benedict, as if it were an adder. In the house in Wolverhampton, Paulie was sitting on a scummy orange beanbag and eating Alpen with water. He's having it with water, but Boris can't imagine a world where muesli is anything but branded. Yeah. That's, this to him is scummy because it's with water. Also, uh, uh, we should ring the breakfast klaxon because uh, yes. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while, but we've got one. Um, and yeah, 10.27, snuck in just before half 10, which I think is the official international agreed cutoff time for brunch. So <laughs> <It really> he's <is>. managed. 
<laughs> he couldn't. He, he scarcely had chapters left at this rate. Well, sadly, yeah. she had quite a few. Yeah. But to get to get a last breakfast in and, yeah. and a brand as well. Yeah. And, and nice to have a diversion from Weetabix, which presumably yeah. is just another editing note, which is like, yeah. you, you can't. He can't also be eating Weetabix. Please, <laughs> at least say a different cereal. It's, yeah, uh, we're gonna start calling calling out some of these quote unquote callbacks, Boris, as just laziness. <laughs> yeah. Nah, he said. Nah. He put his face right next to the screen so that his features were bathed in the strobing panicky colours of his former colleague's skin. I just do not believe it, he said. <laughs> Over his into his alpen. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, I just do not believe it. I just do not. He wouldn't even concatenate that. Such a lover of the English language was Paul. Mm. And the reaction was much the same in other parts of Wolverhampton. I imagine it was. Oh, for God's sake, said Price the Cheese. Oh, they're all coming back. They're all coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Absolute Rogue's Gallery of previous highlights. I hope we get into a little bit more detail as well, which mm. I presume is what some of the padding will be. Oh, for God's sake, said Price the Cheese, and a ladle of whey dropped from his hand and clattered to the floor of the swish new cheese orium he had constructed with the insurance. <laughs> we'd win, isn't it, really? Next door, in the same old house in Weddensbury, Dennis Faulkner, who you'll remember, Johnny, is an arch racist, mm. was so stunned that he thought he was having another little blip. <laughs> Remember he had a he had a um, a mini stroke when Dean got arrested, I believe. That's right. Yeah. When, when because he, when Dean's crimes cause illness in his carers. <laughs> he's basically he should be he's basically a murderer. Yeah. He rose from his anti-macassed Parker knoll and tried to loosen the tartan tie at his throat. Hook hawk hawk, he said, which I think is Vulcan and crashed back down again, knocking over various pottery objects raged on the sideboard behind the chair. It seems like a... Maybe. Who who organises a table of pottery behind the chair? Seems like a massive disaster, particularly for someone with such high blood pressure. Also, I know know insurance payments can take a while to come through, but Price of Cheese, he's built his Swiss New Cheese Orium. Dean was, what, 15 when he burnt down the cheese? It's been it's been half. It's been yeah. It's been a few years, hasn't it? Insurance claims, isn't it? It's probably yeah. They probably probably dragged it on, yeah. Yeah. And they brought those trees that he cut down into it somehow. Mm-hmm. There was even one person, Johnny. Sorry, we did... I'm sorry we don't cover you for people who are on the conveyor belt to crime, because <laughs> that's inevitable that they're going. If you're going to live next to them, we spend enough money rehabilitating them. Let <laughs> me re-itemize that. There was even one person in the audience who thought she recognised Dean. She had been shivering and praying and crying with fear, and as she had opened her eyes and seen him, it couldn't be him, and yet it had to be. I mean, that's too much of a coincidence, isn't it? It can't be, can't be Lucy Goodbody of the Guardian. Surely not Gooders. I mean, everyone was watching the speech. Surely, <laughs> surely that would be a stretch too far. That every single character mentioned in the book so far is now in Westminster Hall. Or watching directly on television. It's the uh, it's the address that shook the world. I yeah. can you imagine that people would tune in, but not necessarily this quickly. Not particularly no. not in a pre-Twitter day. Mm. Um, in the ops room, back to the ops room. In the ops room, Blewett flipped the switch again so as to communicate directly with his agents in the hall. 
this is Blewett, he said. <laughs> this is Pernell, said Pernell, which is like the start of an awful drive-time DJ yeah. on commercial radio. <laughs> this is Blewett, and this is Pernell, and we're going to get you home. Yeah, they'll definitely be on TalkSport. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Is Man U still a big club? (laughs) (laughs) Call us and give us your opinion. Purnell's clearly pro moist. Yeah. (laughs) Right. This is both of us, said Blewett, which is which is actually kind of what you probably would say on the radio. Mm -hmm. They've taken my gun, sir, said one USSS man. Mine too. Mine too, sir. I've still got a clear (laughs) shot, sir, said Kabash. Do not, repeat, do not attempt to take these guys out. Please cooperate and encourage the civilians to cooperate. Yes, sir. Sir, said one agent. Yes. What happens now? Do you guys have a plan? We're working on that right now. Wow. Doesn't sound like they've got a plan, Andy. It doesn't really, does it? The dialogue's a bit stilted, but I think you can read through that that yeah. they don't really know what's happening. <laughs> we're, jumping all over, we're jumping all over the space. Yeah. There is an iron railing at the top of we- top end of Westminster Hall, equipped with a gate, which is used to control access by the public as they come in through St. Stephen's entrance, which you can add to your little map, Johnny. Yeah, thank you. Behind that fence was ranged an exotic collection from the great bestiary of British ceremonial. There was the Lord Chamberlain, an office now held by an epicene young cokehead. <laughs> Straight out of nowhere. Uh, the, an office now held by an epicene young cokehead whose family name may be found in the pages of Shakespeare. I don't remember seeing Gove in Shakespeare, (laughs) but (laughs) maybe I'll have to reread my Shakespeare and see if Gove is in there. I'm sure it'll come up. Well, apparently, Mm. anyway. He was wearing buckled shoes, tights, a stock, and the kind of frilly frock coat favoured by Sir Mick Jagger in his sympathy for the devil phase. (laughs) (laughs) There was a man whose technical name was Silverstick, but whose wife called him Algy. A superannuated army officer whose creaking calves now sheathed in black silk had once propelled him over the trionine victoriously at Twickenham half a century ago. There was Rouge Dragon Pursuivant and Garter King of Arms and a man called the Earl Marshal whose job it was at the state opening of Parliament every year to carry something called the Cap of Maintenance. There was the Speaker and his clerks, all braided, wigged and frogged, and there to one side, standing nearest the gate and fingering with wet grip the old ebony staff, surmounted by a lion, which had been the mark of his office since it was created by D. Payton in 1350, was the gentleman usher of the Black Rod. There, because he is sergeant-at-arms of the lords, and it falls to Black Rod to officiate all such encounters between their lordships and distinguished visitors. Wow, oh. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's everyone's there, all the lads. Are they building up to... Something? I mean, not clear. There's there's a lot more yet, though. There's a lot more backstory, don't worry. Mm. Poor Black Rod. (laughs) (laughs) He'd thought it career. With the utmost dash, gallantry, and dispatch, and with signal. Yep, and with signal disregard (laughs) for his own safety, he had led his SAS detachment by rope ladder up the cliffs of Aden. When he had successfully applied for his current position after seeing an advertisement in the Times, it was in the belief that he had all the calm and cunning to deal with any threat that might befall the upper house. And now he had been outmaneuvered. Oh dear. Hmm. Sounds like the blame's falling at his door, rather than the bumbling MP who's had multiple opportunities to stop this uh, terrorist plot over the last few hours, and the people whose actual job it is, rather than their ceremonial job to protect the room. Blewett and Purnell, who are currently fused together in some sort of 
hideous Jeff Goldblum fly style experiment. <laughs> you can feel like Black Rod might be a bit of a uh, bit of a straw man in this. Yeah, Black, it feels yeah. a little bit like well, you know, really that is the responsibility of the office of the rot. So. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> You've had a good run. Yeah. As Dean looked at Black Rod, he saw that his expression was shared by almost all the representatives of Britain's spavin junker aristocracy. They fingered the ancient maces and swords and pikes and halberds and rods by which it was their sworn duty and principle to defend this place. And a mood rose off them like a vapour. It was not alarm or fear. It was shame. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. I'm the right speaker. I think this is quite interesting though, because I think um, this is quite true in that if you do, quite often, if you do actually confront an old boy or, you know, give them an opportunity to uh, <laughs> to act on some of the horrendous rhetoric they've spouted, they quite often will be quite cowardly and not do anything about it. So I'm not in entirely this... surprised. No, to see the institution of the old boy not yeah. doing anything. Yeah. I say, whispered Silverstick to the Earl Marshal, easing his sword perhaps half an inch out of his scabbard. You know what I think? Don't be an idiot, said the Earl Marshal. But I really feel we ought to do something. Just don't even think about it. It's all very well saying that, but Silverstick was going to point out that a large proportion of his male relatives had died in engagements so heroic as to be ludicrous, charging machine <laughs> gun nests with nothing but a whistle and a swagger stick, abseiling down smokestacks into the Bessemer converses of the Ruhr. But he knew that the old marshal's family had been in reinsurance before being raised to the peerage by Beauchart, <laughs> and he did not want to appear snobbish. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing that Silverstick ever made it to be born, to be honest, given how stupid his uh, ancestors were. Yeah. yeah. No, they must have just pro procreated before committing suicide. <laughs> What about the element of surprise, quavered Silverstick, voicing the secret thoughts of all the halberdiers, pikemen and rod-wielders who stood impotently around? I think you would find it was surprisingly stupid, said the Earl Marshal. Ha. He had no need to articulate the odds. Even if Silverstick <laughs> could get around the... I mean, no, he, absolutely not, he didn't. He didn't. But we're going to go into it anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even if Silverstick could get around the fence and skewer the lead terrorists without precipitating a torrent of Uzi or Schmidt bullets, there was the prior problem. If Jones the bomb was to be believed, his death would be automatically followed by a detonation that would kill them all. Yeah, yeah. we've already covered this. We're, we're with you. Like, you know, we need to, <laughs> to, need to be we need to reinforce that from everyone in the room's perspective. Is <laughs> that the third chapter in a row where this has been the central? Like, Wait, closing on, what, point. What's he talking about? Is that flicking back through the book? Yeah. Where does it say this? It's like, every page says that. But do you think they can possibly be serious? Said Silverstick. I have a terrible feeling that they are. I just think you... I don't know if they're <laughs> trained on this, but you just take them on their word, don't you? Just in case... Because if they're right, then you're all going to die. And, and like, if they're wrong, then you're still going to be judged for taking that risk. There's no one, no one in there is thinking, I should have a go at this. Yeah. Exactly zero chance you would do that. The flower of England's chivalry and of, oh, that said, I guess if you charged at a machine gun nest with a stick, mm -hmm. you, might, you might take those odds, but <laughs> the, you've accepted death at that point. Don't bring it to everyone else. <laughs> the flower of England's chivalry and nobility stared out at the expanse of Westminster Hall, 
the heat seemed to have intensified under the TV lights, he's already said that, and the audience flapped their programmes ever more desperately, like, oh, like, the <laughs> oh, okay. like the spastic batting of a butterfly's wings as it dies against a window. A lovely image. Mm. The old English soldiers stood on the dais and looked at the innocent multitude. They looked with expressions as stony as the very sculptures that dotted the hall. They looked with the hollow eyes of men who have failed in their first and defining constitutional duty. Black Rod clutched his eponym and was at a loss. And thus concludes. It's poetic, isn't it? Episode. Poetic. It is. It's beautiful. So we just on that, we went, we went six pages, seven pages, and we only went one minute. So there you go. That's the end of that chapter, literally. Nice. It's almost like, uh, you know, if, if an institution when faced with a crisis is paralysed and um, can't function, what's the point in it? <laughs> I wonder if there's any, um, that's a Johnsonian uh, hint at a parallel with the current situation. Yes, yes, very <laughs> nice, yeah. Is there a black rod for infectious diseases? <laughs> yes, and uh, he also wrote this book. <laughs> Old boys. Here we go, chapter 38. 10.0, 28 hours. Inching forwards. <laughs> We could, we could scarcely go, in the format he's used, we could scarcely go slower. <laughs> it would be amazing if they had a, a 0.5 of a minute chapter. <laughs> or just two of them at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I think I'll just, I'll just throw the book out the or window. Or they just start going backwards in time. Like, what is going on? Anyway, Roger Barlow, we're back with the main man. Roger Barlow sat sprawled in his seat near the back, looking up at the hammer beam ceiling and gave way to fear and to glassy despair. He bungled it. <laughs> wow, what, what an incredible tool of self-reflection he possesses. <laughs> for, the, for the 50th time today, he's bungled it. Yeah. <laughs> he bogged it up. I don't think that's a phrase, but never mind. He could have been a hero. Now, he had been proved right. And Chester de Peveril had been proved wrong. And the only consolation was that Chester de Peveril was as likely as any of them to get blown to smithereens. And just, just a note for the, for the listener, in case you've forgotten, Chester de Peveril <laughs> is a famous chef. <laughs> One of the more obvious attendees. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that's probably how he thinks, isn't it? It's like, well, I guess one takeaway is, in a world that no one knows, that's internal only to me and him, and even he didn't know the context, de Peveril was wrong, and I was right. <laughs> So even, <laughs> even if we do get blown up, who sucks to the Peveril? I, I was right. Me. Yeah. Oh, you pathetic man. That would be the first line in the history books of this incident, wouldn't it? Roger Barlow was correct. The Peveril was wrong. And the president of the entire cabinet of the United Kingdom was killed. <laughs> that would be the footnote. <laughs> it's just an astonishing lack of um, empathy or any kind of like awareness of the situation you're in. It's oh, funny, well, it's funny, Mummy. Isn't right it? About this. On the day that we celebrate Roger Barlow being right, there's another date here. <laughs> yes, but we don't. We just celebrate Roger Barlow being right. <laughs> we're not interested in that other nasty bit of news. Yeah. It's, we we're not. We hate the Peveril in this family, don't yeah. we? We all hate the Peveril because he was wrong, wasn't yeah. he? <laughs> what was he wrong about? It doesn't, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yeah. But Barlow yeah. being wrong, no, 
not as far as I recall. Yeah. Not not every time he did anything for the preceding two hours forty minutes. Daddy, what did they used to call uh, to Peveril night, um, where we light bonfires and set off fireworks before <laughs> the great day where Roger Barlow was right? Well, if you want, for my money, it should always have been called the Peveril night. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, one of the Arabs was coming down the aisle, waggling his gun and urging them all to speed up. Give mobile, he said. Give mobile. We all know, we know, we know that every single one of them is extremely fluent in English and often poetic. But I think, just say, give mobile. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, it could be Harun or Habib. We don't know. Or it might be. Oh, it might do you think these are Benedict? Yeah, maybe. Okay. The guardians of the sewer. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. The, sewer, the sewer guardian Arabs, you know. Oh, um, yeah. Those ones. Yeah. From the... De Peveril chucked his across onto the stone floor. You had better give him your phone, Rog, he said. I don't have one, said Barlow. Why doesn't he have one, Johnny? Because he threw it out of a moving car on a motorway. Of course he did. Well, at least, at least Andy, that's what he said earlier in the book. But let's see. He hoped he sounded surly rather than frightened. He didn't like mobiles because he couldn't trust the blighters. They were technological judases, he thought as he stared at the ceiling. There had been a god-awful moment the other day when his blinking mobile had contrived quite independently to dial his wife. Oh, oh dear. Well, this has, oh. Been, this has been hinted at throughout the book, hasn't it? This could be over the great scandal. Over pages. It's so, let's dig finally, into it. Finally there. He was somewhere he really shouldn't have been. Not for his own good. And he was in the company of the woman in whom this ghastly reporter from the mirror was now taking such an interest. The woman in question seemed deliberately to have exposed her bosom. Oh, dear <laughs> me, Rog, what have you been up to? Is it just me, or does it feel like a lawyer's drafted this paragraph? <laughs> like any of the bits where the disclosure yeah. feel like they've been thoroughly legally checked? Yeah. The woman in question seemed deliberately to have exposed her bosom. I mean, that leaves you a lot of wiggle room for later uh, admissions or walked backs of statements, doesn't it? And she was looking at him imploringly. Oh, please, she droned. You promised. Do it for you, Laylee. It's a fantastic investment. Throwing <laughs> mm. throwing a bit of a curveball in that last bit. I'd, uh, can we just stop for a moment and imagine this? <clears throat> what sounds like a business pitch, right? She's talking about an investment. And let's just picture the scene. Where do you think Roger is? Do you think he's in a boardroom? Because yeah. <laughs> this... This woman's breasts have just fallen out of it, of her business attire. <laughs> she doesn't know. She, well, we, we don't know. We don't know if it's deliberate. It's very carefully worded. Um, what, what do you think, Roger? <laughs> what do you think, Roger's reaction to this carry-on uh, yeah, of the hedge fund um, investment? Pitch. I imagine there's a fair degree of salivating on the immediate horizon, mm -hmm. and perhaps eye bulging. Yeah, I think I think his ear might turn into an old-time uh, train steam whistle that <laughs> he might tug on, and his That's tongue might roll out like spice. a red carpet. <laughs> heart potentially leaping out through his shirt, perfect yeah. romantic heart shape. Yeah. 
you promised, do it for you, Laylee. It's a fantastic investment. Roger had smiled at her because he really wanted to make her happy or at least stop bugging him. Not yeah. the same things. <laughs> Probably require quite different responses. One's a cut email. The other is yeah. <laughs> a kind of extra marital activity. Then he thought he must be going mad. He could hear the voice of his conscience. It was this tiny voice squeaking at him from his breast pocket like Tinkerbell. Darling, is that you? Hello, hello. Oh, hi, darling, he said when he twigged. Hi, did you call me? No, I didn't call you. You must have called me. No, I didn't call you. You definitely called me. Oh, mm, oh, good. How are you? Oh, I'm all right. How are you? You sound as though you'd been running. Classic joke. It had been all told. Quite a sticky conversation. Doesn't sound like it. Feels like we were party to all of it. Seems totally <laughs> fine. Also, who, who thinking that they were finally, for the first time, somewhat unbelievably, having an attack of conscience, thinks that it would try and break in by, by calling you darling. No one's conscience. <laughs> oh, hi, darling, is that you? Said my conscience to me. Like, yeah. <laughs> no. I like to think in the expanded Boris verse universe in the fan fiction I'm going to write um, that Roger Barlow is, you know, the Labour MP who was shining his shoes in the hallway. Yeah. I reckon this is her, his wife. Yeah, he's the person that drove her away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's my unified theory of 72 virgins. Anyway. <clears throat> I'd, 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 I'd pay for a version where it was Purnell's wife. <laughs> It could be arranged. It could be arranged. It had been, all told, quite a sticky conversation. And then another time he was waiting to vote late at night. And would you believe it, her mobile accidentally dialed his and left a long message. It must have jostled up against something in her handbag or been squeezed in some unexpected way. And he found himself listening to his wife walking down the street when he thought she was at home. Pock, pock, pock went her heels. And then she seemed to arrive somewhere. And then he found himself listening with paranoid fascination as she engaged in some extended transaction full of ambiguous pauses with some chap or other. And when the message ended, Roger was so wrung out that he decided mobiles were instruments of temptation and that he would have no more to do with them. Sounds like his wife's taken up scuba diving, mate. <laughs> certainly, certainly he's approached uh, dealing with any of those potential issues in the most sensible way possible. He folded his arms. Yeah, he folded his arms, ignored Chester, and gazed aloft at the woodwork. Um, and that's the end of chapter 38. Uh, and you'll notice there, Andy, that um, his story's shifted somewhat on why he doesn't have a phone. Um, it's not because he chucked it out of the car window, it's because he, he doesn't want any more to do with them because they betray him. So It seems like he's been betrayed in a lot of ways, but not necessarily by his phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it, what's it? What's that meant to mean? Is it meant to mean that he thinks his wife's having an affair, but he's not interrogated that fact? Or yeah, I think I think it's meant to be like he's obviously having an affair with this woman whose uh, bosoms keep falling out in meetings, quite mm. quite by accident. Um, but then, so that he's not the bad guy, you just throw throw some mud at his wife as well and be like, yeah, oh, she's doing it. So and obviously, I've not ever been in this situation, but. I would imagine that even if you were, you can extrapolate it down to like you know, a toy as a kid kind of thing. Even if you mm -hmm. got the one you want, the fact you lost your favourite toy to someone else would still be a bit upsetting. It seems like yeah. he's, I mean, I guess he has, he doesn't have human emotions. Yeah. Unlike um, his phone, which apparently can be uh, 
can be squeezed in an unexpected way, as if a phone has certain ways it's expecting to be squeezed, but if it's done so in an unexpected way, it will call your husband. Yeah. Just a, just um, a weird choice of words. And also, I, I mean, it, it's quite boring to point out how sexist this book is, but um, obviously in Roger's case, it's the woman who's initiating the affair, and he, I mean, he's a red-blooded man, isn't he? What's he going to do if a pair of breasts fall out in front of him? I mean, come on. Come on. What's anyone going to do? Um, yeah, his wife is also, you know, she's, she's the instigator. There, yeah, she? yeah, she's exactly. the instigator of the other. And so she's sort of double-crossing him, whereas he's just like, you know, come on, it's presented to me on a plate. What was I supposed been, to do? He'd have been mad not to. Yeah. I think, um, um, I, I, I wonder what, if either of these storylines will actually play themselves out. Yeah. It's conceivable well, that Rogers might, but I think yeah. that, I think that's all we're going to get from the wife. Or. But it's a very um, it's a very uh, yeah important chapter plot wise in terms of what's happened. I mean, he's been hinting at this story with the Daily Mirror journalist for a long time, and that we finally got some meat on the bones. He's involved in some sort of dodgy affair slash investment thing that he shouldn't be. It is an important chapter in that sense. It's otherwise three pages on which nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. Old boys. Right, should we drive on? Chapter 39? Chapter 39, it's 10.30. It's three minutes in book time. Yeah. And 40 minutes in reading time. Um, not clear, so I assume we're still with Roger, but uh, chapter 39, 10.30 hours opens just with Sweet Lord, he thought. Which if you imagine how a proper book is written, not this one, but a proper book, you wouldn't know who was speaking there. So no. you just assume that it follows on. Yeah. There's it's... something moving. He could have sworn he saw something up there where the huge transoms of oak melted into darkness. He thought of pointing out to Chester and then decided against. The, the mystery of Westminster Why, why isn't he paying attention to like the guy who's holding the president hostage at the front of the room? What is Jones just silent at this point? Or what's what's going on? I mean, yeah, the guy at the front, he's not paying attention to. He's got literally a gun against the president's head and is has locked a bomb to him. The guy who's come down asking, saying, "Give mobile." The Peveril's chucks his, but Roger has. Fought, you're going to remember the guy who's asking for mobiles hasn't read this book. He doesn't yeah. know the intermittent <laughs> insanity between these two things happening. All he knows is the guy said, "Give mobile," and then if you in his brain, we cut to. Roger folded his arms, ignored Chester and the guy, and gazed aloft at the woodwork. The guy would shoot him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just thinks he's like an impetuous tit. Like he's just yeah. not. It's, he didn't know he's had this internal dialogue where he's mm. remembered his wife having an affair. He just thinks he's ignoring him. Yeah. Somehow he's got away with it. Did you get all the mobiles? Uh, no, uh, yeah, I got them all apart from one. The guy over there just ignored me, so I did thought you? I'd leave it. Were you going to shoot him? <laughs> oh, no, but he folded his arms and looked. Where did he look, though? Was it It was at the roof? Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> definitely at the roof, because it definitely was at the roof. Come on. That's not my first hold up. The mystery of Westminster Hall is how a space so vast can yet be so old. <laughs> I'll read it again. The mystery, the mystery of Westminster Hall, Johnny, <laughs> is how a space so vast a space, a big, how a space as big as it is can yet be so old, can be as old as it is. And yet, as with most buildings, vast or otherwise, it's probably exactly as old as it is, isn't it? Yeah. It's, 
Yeah, and uh, I'd say the real mystery of Westminster Hall is how it's standing with the great network of caverns that uh, exist beneath <laughs> the brass plates and the floor. And in the ceiling, apparently. Yeah. Even, even This isn't the mystery, by the way. That, the mm. mystery is how big it is and old, simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> this is not a mystery. Even when it's bright outside, a man can stare at someone in the far corner and be able to pick out his features. Not a mystery. Mm just the size and how old it is. There is a total surface area of 1,547 square metres, and somehow they roofed it in an age before steel girders and ferro-concrete. How? <laughs> they, I, think, I think we're about to be told. <laughs> it's, it's still got the watermark from the pamphlet you get when you go on a tour. Yeah. It's just copied and How? <laughs> Good question. Thanks for asking. They, or rather Richard II, employed a man called Hugh Herland, who built the biggest and most technologically advanced hammer beam roof in the world. At the end of each hammer beam, her, and if you've just started listening, this is still <laughs> Boris Johnson's 72 versions. It's just yeah. a couple of pages diversion on the construction of Westminster Hall, which we've been in now for 150 pages of book, and we've been trying to get in for the other 85 pages. Yeah. And... As, as yet not warranted a technological or architectural description. But now, as the action's hotted up to the highest pitch it's been all book, we're just going to take a step back and we're going to reminisce over the ceiling construction of Westminster Hall. For no obvious reason. I, I feel like uh, part three's hammer beam roof is the answer to part one's twin squirrel Eurocopter. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a phrase that's being said far too much. <laughs> yeah, well, the uh, of course, the twin squirrel uh, Eurocopter <laughs> engine is very much the uh, 21st century's hammer beam roof. Yeah. <laughs> what the mystery of the twin squirrel yeah. Eurocopter <laughs> is both its age yeah. and its copter. Yeah. <laughs> So they, or rather Richard II, employed a man called Hugh Herland, who built the biggest and most technologically advanced hammer beam roof in the world. At the end of each hammer beam, Herland carved huge angels bearing coats of arms and staring down at the proceedings 90 feet below. I say, actually, it is impressive if he did it on his own, which is what it seems mm. like it's shaping up to be. Yeah. Maybe that should be even. The angels' faces are now a good ruddy wood colour, but for most of the six centuries of their existence, they have been black. In the winter, and indeed for much of the year, the cold seeps up through the clammy riverbank on which the flagstones are set. To take the chill off the grim medieval hangar, the occupants would light fires, and because the braziers sent up so much soap, it was necessary to make primitive openings in the roof. These chimney holes have long since been turned into hatches for use by electricians or death watch beetle inspectors, and the biggest chimney hole, not far from the north door, has been covered with a flesh a folly of Victorian Gothic spindles that rose from the spine of the roof. You're going to like this next bit. It's amazing that someone could spend so long talking about a hammer beam roof and yet leave the reader with no clear idea of what a hammer beam roof looks like. <laughs> it's just, yeah, learning through repetition. I've got no idea. It. I was trying to picture it in my head and I just pictured, I, I just picture, a, I don't know, just, just a, a, a wooden roof. I've got no oh, idea... It's a roof from my from my understanding. It's a it's a roof that have got angels at the end of it. Mm. That's what it looks like. And hatches. Well, you got your hatches. Obviously, that's classic in any hammer beam roof. But, <laughs> but the beauty of this one is the angels, the black angels. Yeah. So anyway, Jason Pickle, 
Oh yes, here we go. Now we're, now we're getting to the meat of the issue. I had found an inspection hatch in the bottom of the flesh. And through this, he now inserted his booted feet and the knife-like creases of his fatigues. And his bleeding scrotum. <laughs> his mangled bleeding <laughs> Still knife-like creases, but yeah. sodden with his own blood. Yeah. For a few seconds, and this must have hurt, his legs <laughs> swung in the darkness. <laughs> the hatch was tight, and it was hard to see below. There must be a platform beneath him, he reasoned. Why the hell else would they build a hatch here? Good point. Good, good reasoning. <clears throat> he lowered himself as far down as he could, straining with his biceps as though exercising on the parallel bars. He, <laughs> he pointed his toe and probed the obscurity beneath. His toe cap connected with a beam. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, hummed Pickle as he prepared for his plunge. Save in the cross of Christ my God, he whispered. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Yep, a sacrifice was called for, and there was no higher cause. Has anyone ever called for a sacrifice with the beginning word, yup? Yeah. <laughs> for my money, it's sacrifice or bust. This is everything he's trained for. Everything is, everything is vegetable cheating. Grandmother taught him how to, about how to play fair, how to, how to sacrifice for a win. Every time he went to bed early whilst he's wife scuba dived for a heart content <laughs> regulating her oxygen intake this is what he was thinking about yeah flipping his arms above his head like the two handles of a corkscrew when the cork is ready to be drawn specifically at that time yeah he disappeared through the hole i think a cork was being several corks were drawn as this was written yeah <laughs> i imagine it just smashed and poured into a car in his black in his for helicopter lovers, in his black hawk, Captain Riccasoli spotted the movement and jabbed with his finger. Whoa, boy, he said over the open mic system. Spelt Mike, M-I-K-E, but I'm not sure that's right. Did you see that? I'd love to see Riccasoli doing open mic. <laughs> Don't you hate it when you're, you're in your black hawk and, uh, <laughs> oh, she knows what I'm going to say with this, and you get a twin squirrel <laughs> Eurocopter. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Quiet down, quiet down. What's that? Said Deputy Assistant Commissioner Purnell from the Ops Room, where sovereignty over the disaster was still alternating uneasily between the Metropolitan Police and the USSS. I just saw some guy go through a hole in the roof, said Riccasoli. Did you authorise anyone to go through the roof? Asked Blewett. Nope, you must have done. <laughs> Sorry, chummy, it must be one of yours. Woo boys, said Riccasoli, crackling in from his vantage point. It must be Pickle. Get Riccasoli in the ops room now. Is yeah. there anyone who knows what the fuck's going on? Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, the, the, the dialogue of that bit was just was so natural, wasn't it? It was... <laughs> it felt like being there, yeah. It felt like you can, you, not only do you get kind of the, what they're trying to say and get up, but you get the mm. tension. That's, yeah. what, that's, that's his real skill. People often say with script writing and stuff that dialogue's the hardest bit to get right, but you know, there's passages like that that make you realise why the pros get the big bucks, doesn't it? Because, yeah. I mean, Boris just, he just nails it, doesn't it? He's earned it with every syllable. It's mm. perfect. It's, it's, it's faultless, faultless dialogue. <laughs> Deputy Assistant Commissioner Purnell of the Metropolitan Police drew the microphone towards him and a few inches away from his American co-gerent. Pickle, he said. <laughs> he knew all about pickle. <laughs> Everyone did. He's all over yeah. the internet. He massacred people. Yeah. <laughs> 
Everyone knows about this. The Daily Mirror ran a number of exposés on him. Yeah, he's a war he's, criminal. He's the lunatic on the roof. Yeah. <laughs> given a, he was just trying to cap, said journalist. Yeah. That's right, said Blewett. He's the boy. The one we had on the roof. Oh, so you remember him now, Blewett. <laughs> because moments ago, you couldn't conceive of who it might have been. <laughs> a computer screen had already provided an image of Pickle's countenance, looking as usual. No, that's right. A computer screen had already provided... There's no, there's no comma there. There's no comma there. <laughs> Looking, as usual, I'll put the punctuation in, like a freshly castled prodded bullock. <laughs> He's okay. go-to luck. Yeah, yeah. We can all... And, uh, that's an image that sings to everyone. Something that uh, Blue and I agree on. And he's madder than a shithouse rat. <laughs> I think we've just found our episode title. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Hammerbeam Roof. Yeah, a phrase that, that I'm pretty sure doesn't exist in the English language. Uh, I certainly mad of a shithouse rat. Perhaps shithouse on a rolling Tuscan hill on a hot day with the screech of a maiden. <laughs> At least in my experience. Is he still armed? asked Pennell. I'd be amazed if he wasn't. Well, don't be that amazed because Indira has tried to disarm him. Yeah. On order of the other man in the room. Biologically disarmed him. <laughs> but does he know the score? Does he know not to shoot? How the hell would I know? All I can tell you for certain is that Lieutenant Pickle is armed with an M24 sniper rifle <laughs> capable of firing bullets at 834 metres per second and that he don't miss. All I can tell you is the speck of his gun. Yeah. And I'm going to. Another, another great piece of, of, of really natural dialogue. And... Um, I would say it's it's not so much that uh, the problem with Pickle is, is that he misses. The problem with Pickle is that the people that he hits are the wrong people. So <laughs> He doesn't miss. Just the target? Oh, the target. No, we'll have to dig those stats out. No, but he will kill something. <laughs> if you want everyone in that hall lighting up, this is the guy. Yeah, unless, unless, it, unless it's a hall full of geraniums, in which case you've got the wrong man on the roof. Pickle, Pickle drew his sniper's bead onto the bomb itself and lit yeah. the whole face. Yeah. As it happens, this was no longer true. That is, at the moment he dropped through the hatch, Pickle had his rifle strapped around his shoulders and the strap had caught on the latch of the hatch. Mm. Like Dr. Seuss. <laughs> the strap might have turned into Pickle's noose had he not released himself before dropping 10 feet onto a platform built beneath the flesh. That's a hell of a way to fall. Yes. That's a Second story window into in, and presumably the room's quite quiet at this point, and that would make a noise, but yeah, that <laughs> was just not touched upon. No, well, yeah, he arrived almost silently, he arrived almost <laughs> silently. And if you were thinking, oh, but I can't almost silently, what would that, what would that be like? Who, who's famous that was it would be like Errol Flynn dropping from the mizzen mast to the deck? So, there you go, that's the kind of noise if you're thinking. Sure. So everyone turned to Errol Flynn page. He crept to the edge of the platform and absorbed first the dreadful scene being enacted beneath him. Then he looked up and saw his gun glinting in the light from the open hatch and dangling uselessly 10 feet above. Uh-oh. So we've got a disarmed but angry pickle somewhere in the hammer beam roof. <laughs> I like to imagine, you know that bit in Men in Black where the, the or it's in like every sort of cheesy horror movie where something drips down from the ceiling and like lands on someone and then they look mm. up 
Pickles' scrotal blood dripping down onto <laughs> someone's head. And then them looking up into the darkness. <laughs> Just be pooling in his boots at the moment. Presumably as well, we know, we, know he's a, we know he's a bit of a mystic and we know he's got um, some romantic sensibilities, particularly for the mm. poems of W.H. Rowling. So <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if the... Uh, I'm wondering if the mystery of the hammerbeam roof might end up being a bit too much for Pickle. It might be yeah, practical. Yeah, 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 that's very true, yeah. This might actually just be the end of his plot line. Yeah. Has everyone handed in their mobiles? <laughs> well, we know they haven't. Not for one to try. There was a silence broken only by coughing and whimpering. Broken only by coughing and whimpering. Yeah. <laughs> broken by both coughing <laughs> and whimpering. The and, a, and a six foot four American Marine thudding onto a platform in the roof. <laughs> Much like the thud Errol Flynn would precipitate as he <laughs> dropped. <laughs> yeah, so only whimpering and coughing. The girl Benedict was moving up the aisle. Right, so you would read that thinking, the girl, Benedict, was moving up the aisle. Like there would be a, a, a girl who's been moved up the aisle by Benedict. But actually, it's just an adjective to describe that Benedict is a girl. I mean, to be honest, I'd completely forgotten her gender in the last... Uh... <laughs> yeah. I needed to be reminded again. The girl, Benedict. That the woman is the real baddie. The girl, Benedict, was moving up the aisle. Dragging two bulging bin bags of bones. That's going to cause Pickle to wince. <laughs> two bulging sacks. <laughs> Dean looked at the audience and wished he could control his patella. <laughs> it was as though it was on an invisible string and someone was jerking it up and down. That's what people meant, he realised, when they said that their knees were shaking. <laughs> they meant their... Uh, they meant their knees were shaking, Johnny. That's what they meant. You're right, Dean. Said, yeah, I've just got a dreadful problem with my patella. Oh, uh, yeah. Can you describe it? Well, it's shaking, but there's no, uh, there's no euphemism for it. You've got a very strange lexicon for a man who spent most of his juvenile and, and adolescent life in uh, institutions. You know, Dean, though, Johnny, he's got a, as Dean would say, he's got a chip on his clavicle. <laughs> Lovely, 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 lovely. He couldn't believe the calm of Harun and Habib, who you'll remember spent a lot of time in terrorist training, whereas mm. Dean went to an Afghani guest house and mm. did a shit ton of smack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I that's, that, actually. That's maybe the difference. Yeah. Um, he couldn't believe the calm of Harun and Habib, walking up and down as if they owned the place, sticking their guns in the bellies of the USSS men. He tried to control his own breathing and to fill his lungs with the confidence of his creed. He remembered what Jones had said so many times. There is a special reward for those who go out and fight and a special place for them in heaven and a lower place for those who receive no hurt and sit at home. I mean, if you still get into heaven, but it's lower, mm. that's the gamble. Yeah. Yeah, thought Dean and breathed out. <laughs> <laughs> he hoped they were watching him in Wolverhampton. He hoped the magistrate was watching him the one who had given him 400 hours of moss picking. He hoped his foster father was watching him now. Above all, in the angriest part of his teenage heart, 
he hoped he was being watched by that beautiful girl he had called Vanessa. Vanessa with the sweet white smile and the fat red kissy lips whom he had trusted with his heart <laughs> and who had turned out to be a fornicating traitor. Again, it's the woman's fault that he's here. He was pushed to this by yep. his mum and now her. <laughs> Kill them all, thought Dean, as anger came to his aid. Kill all the people who called you... <laughs> Kill all the people who called you rhymes with noon, starts with C. Pluck out their eyes, cut off their heads, pull out their intestines with your bare hands. For a moment, he looked cruel and dreadful and hung his Schmidt in the callous posture of some Sierra Leonean child gorilla. He tried out a thin smile and watched as Haroon, Habib and the two other Arabs started to round up the USSS men. Sir, whispered an agent to the ops room, they want me to remove my two-way. Me too, sir. Mine too, sir. Ouch. Don't worry, boys, said the Lewitt. <laughs> Just cooperate and do what they say. Hand over your stuff. We're going to get all you boys, spelt G.O.T., out of there in no time. One by one, the curly whirlies were ripped out of the ears of the USSS men and thrown onto the flags in the middle. Then the agents were made to sit cross-legged on the floor in the central aisle. Blewett gave a blubbering moan of grief as he saw the humiliation of his best men. Well, at least they haven't got kabash yet, he said. And fuck knows what we're going to do with Pickle. Agreed. Jones the bomb <coughs> gripped the lectern and paused. The president turned and looked at the terrorist leader. He thought of making a light-hearted remark. Something about <laughs> carries. Certainly, certainly what the situation calls for, I would say. Presumably that's a man with locked straight patellas. Mm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Thought of making a light-hearted remark. Something about carrying on with a sermon while the collection was being taken. It's... <laughs> that's niche. In spite of his growing conviction that he was about to be killed, the president was conscious, not of the audience in the hall. He didn't really give a stuff about them. And then full stop. And then new paragraph. He was thinking about the millions of Americans <laughs> who would already be watching, apathetically glomping their Cheerios. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Oh, another breakfast. 10.30, you were right. He's oh, sneaking them under the radar at this point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, it's 5.30 on the eastern seaboard, so yeah. um, get up early, have some cheerios, watch that press get killed. <laughs> Breakfast TV. They would be checking for signs of leadership, of masterfulness. He opened his mouth. Yeah, yeah, because that's what American voters look for. Yeah. Yeah. Leadership in the face of danger. That's what Leadership they and masterfulness. Yeah. Drain the swamp. Yeah. <laughs> it's 3 a.m. in California. <laughs> They've got up. Had some Cheerios, fighting for democracy. He opened his mouth. Shut up, said Joe. Ah, that's the classic one-two that... Done him. Um, Absolutely done him. Do you think uh, a bit like, you know, the King's speech, where um, mm. the guy who taught him how to speak properly, and they actually became good lifelong friends after that. Do you mm -hmm. think there's a kind of Joe's the bomb, President of the United States friendship in the offing? Perhaps oh. book two? Oh, that would be amazing, yeah. Sort of, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An odd couple comedy. A bit Those like... could advise him on uh, foreign policy. Yeah. We could comedy. rewind to a simpler time and have uh, John Candy play Jones the Bomb and Steve Martin play the president. <laughs> In the summer, summer yeah. blockbuster, Uncle Bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Planes, trains and ambulances. <laughs> Very nice. The president closed his mouth like a guppy. 
There's your leadership. Here's what's going to happen now, my friends, said Jones. And let me remind you that if you try to kill me, then my neighbour dies too. Oh, sorry, Johnny, I'm not sure actually that bit's been made very clear. So if, if Jones... <laughs> fucking hell. Like, is it, how, how, what? I know we're doing like a couple of weeks, but what, what space between chapters were you expected to give this oh book? Like, what's a year? Yeah, I feel like I'm going mad because... I know that Jones has already given a, given a speech where he said, here's what's going to happen. And then loads of other stuff's happened. And now he's <laughs> saying it again, but slightly Here's what's going to happen now. <laughs> but, but like, I know in book time, loads of stuff's happened. But Jones didn't sit there going, well, one of the anecdotes um, I'm thinking about at the moment is when Roger Barlow's been on. And obviously I've got to put a bit of time in. Like, he's not capable of writing simultaneous action. because. No. His head just forgets. And then he's like, well, it's been ages since we talked about this, but, but not yeah. in the book. Johnson. Yeah. yeah. Jones went on. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and, let, and let me remind you that if you tried to kill me, then my neighbour dies too. It's like in chess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You cannot move this piece without a discovered checkmate. Yes. The president composed his features into what he hoped was a mask of defiance. Jones sorry. went on which is an upgrade from Guppy. <laughs> yeah. Jones went on. My colleagues and I represent a group called Islamic Jihad, or the Brotherhood of the Two Mosques, and there are many injustices we would like to correct. It is now too long that the Zionist entity has been occupying illegally the homeland of my brother Arabs. We would like that to end. We would like an end to the brutal slaughter of families in Navlos, Hebron, and Ramallah, the killing of people who have nothing, who have no weapons, by missiles fired from the helicopters given to the Zionist entity by the Americans. Of course, we would like the final removal of the infidel bases from the lands that are holy to Islam, and we would like to see an end to the corrupt and vicious regimes that are supported by the American taxpayer and by the CIA. We also demand an end to all the torture and brutality in Iraq, and all the guilty to be sent to war crimes trial in The Hague. This was too much. I mean, I, it's, it's hard to disagree with all of it. But. Yeah, oh, he's going for broke, isn't he? He's 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 he's, he's bet the farm on this. As old yeah. Jones the bomb. Yeah, he has. He's re- he has thought through as well. That's a that's a speech. Yeah. This was too much for the president. He had to say something. <laughs> imagine, imagine if he just said, "All right." Imagine he just got okay. We no, we were going to do that anyway. That Would it be any less believable than the, than what's already happened in this book? Or if the president just punched him to death. <laughs> <laughs> this this was too much for the president. He had to say something here. This was a vital part of his political identity. Hey, he raised his eyebrows in that characteristic look of befuddlement. We sure as hell got rid of Saddam, didn't we? <laughs> Jones kept his eyes on the crowd as he whacked the president backhanded and still holding the gun over the top of his head. Uh, the old no-look whack by... Uh... <laughs> Very nice. This is signature move, Johnny. Yeah. Um, that and a feathered shave. Mm. Um, and that brings us to the end of chapter 39. And, uh, wow. Wow. Three chapters in one sitting. I've, what a riot. You don't have to yeah. get that. Feel full. Be greedy. Old boys. So, action packed. Action packed. In it, 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 well, in a sort of classic Johnsonian way, as in a lot of words were written, but not a lot of substance. Mm. But um, little happened. It's all happened. We've we've moved a few more pieces on the board into um, into positions where they can actually 
affect the action. I feel a lot of this book is is um, clunkily um, <laughs> maneuvering people from one place to another so that they can say stupid stuff, and then um, more stupid things can happen. But uh, our boy Pickle, he's not out of the game. I mean, I, I, I thought um, a bursting a testicle would be that would mm. be it. I think you lesser men would have called for a medical evacuation. That's it. I think you've unfairly uh, <laughs> underestimated Pickle's ability to operate on a single testy. Yeah. See if it bleeds out. <laughs> and uh, and that's that's more. But he cool lost his bloody gun, mate. That's it, isn't he it? He doesn't need it. He's got a knife, I think, hasn't he? So yeah. I'm not sure if there's some kind of sort of a Rambo type stealth attack coming up. And uh, maybe, but, maybe. Uh, yeah, it's been a good one for Pickle. I mean, as you say, really, all that's happened is. They've taken the phones, they've made the USSS men sit on the floor and uh, Pickle's gone from the roof to just inside the roof. That's yeah. actually in the last three chapters. What's happened? Oh, the president's yeah. been pistol whipped. Yeah. Or, or yeah. slapped. Yeah. yeah. Also, I just wanted to raise something that I think um, you and, and maybe some of the readers might have missed as well, is that uh, if Jones the bomb dies, mm-hmm. then, then his bomb will go off and everyone will die. Well, that makes it more complicated. Why is he? Yeah. Is that from? Yeah, yeah. Is that a new, know, a new no. edition? No, 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 no. It's in there. It's in there. Oh. And um, it's, it's subtle, though, isn't it? It's yeah. too subtle about this thing. These are important. He gives the reader too much credit. Yeah, and I don't know. Um, I don't know if you picked on the, up on this, but um, and maybe uh, you know, I might, I might be very, very wide of mark here. So feel free to correct me if I'm, if I am. But I get the sense that uh, that Dean it might not be as committed to this cause as, as you know terrorists. yeah the uh, the cheese torture yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like a thinly constructed <laughs> attack on sort of the, the nanny state has uh has not warranted the kind of sort of outcome terrorist that that maybe he he was suggesting and in fact that possibly it went through an editor's hands and said uh no that won't wash that you can't no. you can't just say that because there was an investment in infrastructure when Dean was a child, he's going to become a terrorist, I'm afraid. Yeah. Oh, also, um, uh, almost forgot, low-key highlight was another tits-based escapade for Roger Barlow. <laughs> he's just a, a magnet for buffoonish, <laughs> mild sex play, isn't he? Just, uh, presumably, yeah. much like when he went onto the computer in the House of Commons and Boobtropolis mm. came up. Yeah. Uh, he, he, all he has to do is walk into a meeting with a woman and her breasts will spill out. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, he's independent of her. As a, as a, as a virtual traveller to Boobtropolis, he then became a very, very real traveller to Boobtropolis. Yeah, so we got a little bit more, a little bit more detail about his, uh, this big scandal that he's so worried about, which seems yeah. to be... It's yeah. increasingly, it seems like a valid concern. Yeah. <laughs> it's gone from the totally ambiguous, like, he yeah. could be, you know, what's he getting at? It's going to be, oh, he bought he bought the wrong wine for a yeah. party and he was embarrassed to yeah. actually know he's, he's clearly, there is there is a story. The yeah. mirror is right to investigate. <laughs> yeah. We're not still yeah. clear on what that is, but the, the there is a story that even in his own, you know, how yeah. in your own memory you, you seek to self-protect, yeah. his own memory of it is a woman's breast <laughs> spilling at him. So even in like the dumbed down version, rose tinted glasses of his own, of his own nostalgia, yeah. it's, he's done so he's fucked up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just love that. Um, it's just been, 
you know, 230 pages of, of the journalists just being slagged off and being like, oh, this, this nonsense story that should be anywhere near it. This is, a, this is an MP who's basically in a, in a sex for investment <laughs> scandal. So it's just funny how much it's been played down throughout this, and then when he has to actually come clean, it's like, well, yeah, no, this is this is this is really bad. But you I can't, did, you I can't did do, do that. The, yeah, the shagging in question, yes, obviously yeah. that. <laughs> I never denied that. What I said was, "You're scum for printing it." Yeah, but then he, then he is, <laughs> he is himself. Is he not embroiled in a kind of sex for? investment or friend oh yeah at the moment yeah, yeah. london mayor so do you think this woman with her boobs falling out is jennifer arcuri do you think it's based on her timing wise it could be yeah timing wise it could be couldn't it yeah so there we go Good there we go anyway it. we're yeah. exciting week next week because it's um chapter 40 <sighs> the big four row which is the age of this man when he wrote the book and the age will be when we finish it yeah see you next week ciao bye Oh, boys.